Hi, I'm Tiffany. And I'm Lindsay. And this is Luminol, Luminol Cocktail. Cocktail. So here we are. Yes. Season two. Season two. Episode one. Another 20 episodes coming your way. This is so exciting. Yeah, and it's really fun. So because when we actually upload this, this will be late November, but we were recording today and we found out who our president is going to be. Today. Good Lord, I hope when I go to edit this, this has not changed. On the cry. (laughs) Saturday, November 7th. 2020. Yes. Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Has been elected. Officially, (sighs) correct? Uh, as official as it can be right now. Good Lord, I hope in a couple weeks when I'm editing this, I don't just cry myself <laughs> <laughs> for a large glass God. of wine. <laughs> There's so many ways still that like this could get super fucked up. Mm-hmm. But Are you excited, though? I am so relieved. Is this who you voted for? This is definitely who I fucking voted for. Same as these. I'm just... You're good. I'm happy it's over-ish. I'm happy this part of it's over. I was mentally preparing myself to, like, have to campaign for my own rights as a human. Yeah. I would have let her know where the where the people were from TikTok. Yeah. I just With our coordinated colors. <laughs> yeah. I saw a meme the other day, and it was like, what's the look? Are we doing, like, the yoga pants and coffee? I'm, I'm sorry I'm late to the party, but haha, we won, motherfuckers. Messy bun. <laughs> or is it like, I'm late to the party, but I'm here to fight? And my friend Pamela was like, yeah, just wear yoga pants either way. You can A lot of be flexibility prepared. in those. Exactly. Yeah, I mean. You can you can move around. You can do whatever you need to do. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. If it's cold. If it's cold, we're safe. It's not cold in fucking Some South Carolina. Some people were trying to figure out if it was going to be like north and south things. So that seems a little outdated. Or like an east and west. How we were going to go at it, you know? I don't even know. <laughs> like based on that map. Each state has its own thing. Yeah. There's, like, mini-battles, and you have to defeat the mini-bosses until you get to the ultimate boss, like in the video games. So it's because of all of this, there have been some TikTok videos that show you, based on your zodiac sign, who you would be in, like, a revolution. So, can you guess who you would be? And I think of all the different roles you could play. I mean, I know who I I don't... Who would you... Okay, who would... What kind of person would you want to be? Like, is your role in, like, a revolution? I would want to low-key be, like, Betsy Ross. Just, like, <laughs> over here doing some shit that actually everybody is, like, that's some good shit. But yeah. I'm over here just, like, yeah, I know motherfuckers. Mm-hmm. So Who would I be? So it says that you would be part of, like, the hackers. All right. I thought you would like that because, like. I could do that. You're always, like, I've got really nothing I can offer here to tearing down the government. True. you got to learn some hacking skills. I will take an online some, hacking Some form. coding. <laughs> Coding department. Mine is always leader, and I don't want to be a leader. <laughs> People yes, have a misconception of what a Scorpio is. No, yes, you do, because you would get there, and then, like, the leader would be there, and he'd be like, we're going to do this, this, and this, and you'd be like, no, that's fucking stupid. Here's what we're doing. <laughs> I'll be the second in command. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be Hamilton, basically, the right hand man. There you go. What are we, what are we drinking? Today we're drinking celebratory mimosas because we're basic as fuck sometimes, Mm -hmm. and I was just like... Are we basic, though? I mean, we are two white girls who have a true crime podcast, so there's that. I always felt myself more of the not basic group, because I don't like like Starbucks, although now I gotta fucking go there all the time because they donate Uh to Planned Parenthood. Right? Fuck my life. I don't even like Starbucks coffee. It's, it's like, like my least favorite coffee. I ditched fucking Chick-fil-A and now I go to Starbucks all the time. Oh, I didn't tell you. So Alex, uh, last week we were hanging out and he's like, what do you want for dinner? I was like, I don't know. I really want Chick-fil-A, but I can't go to Chick-fil-A. And he yep. goes, okay, anti-Chick-fil-A. And does this like crazy U-turn and takes us to Popeye's. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, I think you missed the point of uh, my anti-Chick-fil-A. <laughs> sir, I don't want to think about it. I'm trying to be happy today. We're recording... Our second season. Oh, also, our vice president is a woman. I was going to say, Agent (laughs) Orange got kicked out. He was voted off. Orange is sus. Yeah, we have a a, a woman of color. Yeah, also that. Yeah, um, so I was telling the girls that I uh, babysit. And there are the girls in the car that were asking me questions are five and nine. And they're asking me if there's ever been a female president. And I said, no, there hasn't been. And they said, okay, we'll have a vice president. I was like... 
Not that I know of. Pretty sure it's only been men. And they wanted to know why. I was like, well. Because it's rigged. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to tell you now. It's a long discussion for a five and nine year old. Eh. Let's go back to 1773 (laughs) (laughs) and start there. Let's start when America wasn't actually discovered by a white man. It was already existing. Exactly. Let's talk about indigenous peoples and their rights. (laughs) We can just, what part in history would you like? But, so now their goal is to both be vice president. Yes. Not president because president's way too much work. They come to, they they can realize, but VP, they got it. I like it. And then the 11-year-old wants to know ways that she can contribute to civil protest. And I was like... Okay, you're a child. I educate yourself. <laughs> Let's right. start there. Like educate. Read everything you can. Yeah, and right she um, wants to be an engineer, but she might want to go into politics. These are all really strong, opinionated. I love it. Girls, and it's great. So yeah, <clears throat> uh, any new exciting things since the last time we've recorded? I'll be 26. It's exciting tomorrow. It is exciting. I've always wanted to be 25 and older. Aww. 30, flirty, and thriving. I mean, yes. Well, if anyone wants to celebrate, you should watch AHS Cult for a second time around, because it's a really good season. Yeah. It is a strong season. I haven't finished it, but I remember at the time I didn't like it. Rewatching it, it's really good. I feel like it's a lot of hate, because it's got all the, like, phobias and stuff right. that are really triggering for people, but I don't... I'm not afraid of clowns. I have problems with holes. Yeah. Like, a lot of those, like, triggering things don't get to me, so. Ironically enough, we didn't plan this, but we have planned multiple seasons out. Whenever we came up with our, like, idea for what we were going to do, we didn't necessarily, like, think about when it would fall in the timeline of world events. But our first episode (laughs) is political cases. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's fitting. Oh, very, very fitting. I actually learned a lot from researching mine. I don't want to learn it. Like, have you seen people like, I just stop telling me things. Like, I don't want to know anything else about the world. That's how I feel after researching all this. I'm like, I just don't want to know anything else. (laughs) I feel like, I was talking to Ian about it. I was like, honestly, I feel like this podcast has made me a smarter person. Yeah. Because I'm not in school anymore. So So this is... Right. You're le- you're researching. And, exactly. Yeah. So, like, I don't have to write papers. Oh, so I don't have to you homework. Exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, I have to do, like, continuing education and all that for, like, my license and stuff. But even then, like, it's only required for me to have, like, 10 hours every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I'm like, this is cool. This is fun. I've learned a lot. So, what made me interested in this case, actually, mm-hmm. is because there's a movie about it is on it out? Netflix. Yeah. Okay, it is out. So that's what happened. I was in the middle of my Vampire Diaries binge. Yes. And I was like, I literally need a mental break from this. Mm-hmm. Like, I was thoroughly enjoying myself, but also after a certain point, like, I was like, I need I need a palate cleanser real quick, though. And you went that route. I did. <laughs> I love because it. Because it was the first thing. I was like, yeah. That looks interesting. Cool. My palate cleanser is usually horror. (laughs) (laughs) It just looked good. And so I was like, sure, I'll give it a try. Was it good? It was factually terrible. Oh, no. There are a lot of facts that it did get right, but then there's a lot of embellishment. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, of course. They got to make it. There's a lot of embellishment. There is a lot of misrepresentation of facts. Mm Mm-hmm. And also, like, as far as casting goes, like, there are certain casting choices that I was like, fuck yeah, this this is the perfect person. And then there were other people, like, specifically casting choices that were made for members of the, like, the, the defendants that I was like, that person is older and a very market, like, very markedly older than everybody else who's supposed to be, like, around that age. So mm-hmm. what are we doing, guys? Right. Overall, like, I think it it's an interesting watch, so I definitely would recommend it, but I would also say don't plan on getting all your facts from that. I like it. Okay. When I started researching, I was like, oh, that's not what the movie had said at all. So it was good, though. So the case I'm going to be covering is the trial of the Chicago 7th. It was September 24th of 1969. The trial began, it was the trial of the Chicago 8 at that point. 
The events that these men were on trial for occurred the previous year at the 1968 Democratic Convention. Now, the 1968 Democratic Convention was held in Chicago from August 26th through the 29th. And at this point in history, the Vietnam War had been going on for 13 years, and the draft was still taking young men. Martin Luther King had just been assassinated in April, and President Johnson was disliked by many of the Americans who had previously elected him. Racism was running rampant, and the entire country was divided on how to move forward. Wow, feels really familiar. Right? <laughs> there are so many things I was like, are we in 1968? <laughs> we time-traveled as a whole country. Truly. And even within the Democratic Party at this convention, people were divided amongst different candidates. In light of the tumultuous changes, many groups planned to demonstrate at the upcoming convention. The Black Panthers co-founder and national chairman, Bobby Seale, gave a speech. The National Mobilization Committee to End the War in Vietnam, a.k.a. MOBI, led by David Dellinger. Students for a Democratic Society, the SDS, led by Rennie Davis and Tom Hayden. The Youth International Party, or Yippies, led by Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman. And other defendants, John Freund's and Lee Weiner, were all planning on participating in peaceful protests against the Vietnam War, as well as the current administration. Now, although these men ultimately had the same goal of democratic revolution, they were not working together. Like, they weren't organized together. They all knew each other mm -hmm. because they were leaders of their political groups right. that all kind yeah. of... So they're like had read each other's papers and things like that and were aware of each other, but they weren't by any means like bros. Bobby Seale was only in town to give a speech. His speech was about the oppression of minorities that was occurring in our country and the systematic racism that the nation was facing. He specifically spoke about how when the government makes choices they know the people disagree that they know people disagree with, they send in armed forces. A specific quote was that we are here as revolutionaries to let them know that we refuse to accept those political decisions that maintain the oppression of our black people and other people in the world. Very thoughtful, well thought out speech. David Dellinger was a proponent of nonviolence, which was the basis of his political stance. Rennie Davis and Tom Hayden operated with the SDS under the principles outlined in Tom Hayden's paper, The Port Huron Statement. This paper outlined the realization of the paradox of American virtue in the 60s, as it had been discussed by these students who were raised to believe that America was the strongest, smartest, greatest country that was going to lead the world in drastic change. And uh, now that they were reaching adulthood, basically realized that the people who were talking about how America was all about justice and prosperity for its citizens were ravaging other weaker countries and dragging its own youth into a conflict that would ultimately leave no winner. Which, again, the parallels. It's because no one, no one learns about history, therefore we're doomed to repeat it. That is definitely a thing. So the Yippie Movement which Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman were a part of, was an organization that boasted the fact that it didn't actually have a leader. They were described as hippies who practice activism. They were anti-war and advocates for rights for each individual, men and women of all races. Lee Weiner was a local activist and was the only Chicagoan to be put on trial, and John Freund was a chemist and political activist, although his activism is less recorded than the other defendants. Prior to the Democratic National Convention, Chicago's mayor, Richard Daley, was adamant that peace would be kept in Chicago and that the DNC would exist uninterrupted. Several groups asked for permits to gather for peaceful protests in the Loop, which is the public area closest to the Hilton, where the DNC members were headquartered. Despite several requests from different groups, nobody was permitted to protest in those areas. The city granted permission for one rally to be held on the afternoon of August 28th to be held in Grant Park. And although they're only five minutes from each other, Grant Park was not within eyeshot of the Hilton. So even though they'd be close, they wouldn't actually be viewed by the people they were trying to reach with their protest. In order to shut down anyone who opposed the mayor's rule of no protests anywhere other than Grant Park, they deployed 12,000 police officers 5,600 members of the Illinois National Guard and 5,000 army members. Huh. Yeah. 
to keep the peace, quote unquote. (sighs) On August 28th, several thousands of people from various groups all took part in this rally, which quickly mobilized and began heading into the loop to get into sight of the building. Eventually, the protesters were stopped on Michigan Avenue by the National Guard. The law officers had no holds barred on their attack on protesters. Recording of the attacks would be played on televisions nationwide, showing police using tear gas and physically beating the previously peaceful protesters. At this time, in a lot of the articles I read, they were talking about how they had to like alternate coverage. Like it was such a big story, they were alternating coverage of that and the actual like election that was going on to figure out who was going to be the Democrat Party's candidate. Following those riots, Mayor Daley wanted the Sorry, were they riots or were they peaceful protests that turned into riots because of police interfering? Okay. Oh, don't worry. We get there. I was just, I I, I know that you don't have a a different viewpoint. I was just asking if they were actually riots or... So they were peaceful protests that evolved into riots because because of of the police having no So it was a reactionary... Yeah. Following these riots, Mayor Daley wanted the organizers of the protests prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. The Rat-Brown law had been recently passed, which prohibited travel over state lines in order to conspire to incite a riot. What? Uh-huh. He argued that it had been the protesters' intent from the start to incite a riot. Of course. The current president, Lyndon B. Johnson, and his attorney general, Ramsey Clark, didn't think there was a case. They performed an internal investigation of all of the officers that were there in the events that transpired... Which revealed they had more grounds to prosecute police officers Mm -hmm. than they did to pursue charges for the civil rights activist. But wait, there's more. (laughs) The next January, Richard Nixon was sworn in as president, and he appointed a new attorney general, John Mitchell. Mm. Daly made a case to Mitchell, who was much more open to the idea of pursuing a trial for who they saw as the leaders of the anti-war movement. Yeah, I was going to ask that. How did they know who to prosecute? Exactly. Basically, they're like, who are the leaders of these groups? So they knew the groups there. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So Because most of the groups had already applied for a permit. Oh, you mean they want to try to go the legal route? Exactly. They tried to Mm. do follow the legal procedures that are in place. They asked for a permit, and they were denied. And basically everybody who asked for a permit got... They were like, oh, they were intending to do this from the start. So, and I'm sure it's not everybody, but it's... These are the leaders. These are the key players in this event. Well, they're the ones who organized it. Exactly. For their movement, so... Right. After the trial and charges were announced, several prominent people spoke out against the Rat Brown Law. It was it was new. Nobody had ever been tried under it before. Most notably, the proponents against it were Noam Chomsky, Judy Collins, and Norman Mailer, who were part of a 19-person coalition that called themselves the Def- the Committee to Defend the Conspiracy. They helped raise money to support the Chicago Seven as well as to cover legal fees. Hmm. They also published pieces that often centered on how the Rat-Brown Law was essentially a direct contradiction to our First Amendment right to free assembly and how it could be a gateway to lead to a police state. What? Yeah. What? Yeah, I know. (laughs) One of the biggest problems with the trial was the judge, Julius Hoffman. Also, what? Yeah, I know. It's crazy. (laughs) So he was 74 at the time of the trial. I can't say what anymore. <laughs> How about this? He was also a former law partner of Mayor Daley. What? Yeah. Okay, I got one more. So they were bros. <laughs> of course they were. <laughs> this is a fucking conspiracy. <laughs> yep. It was evident that Judge Hoffman was blatantly biased at the trial, mm-hmm. which is what added another layer into making this one of the most inappropriate cases in American history. And like I said, at the beginning, I listed eight defendants even though this is commonly referred to as the Chicago 7 trial. The reason for that is that Bobby Seale was initially part of the trial, and at that point it was referred to as the Chicago 8. But eventually, he was granted to have his own separate trial. But that wasn't granted to him until some pretty terrible shit went down, of course. Bobby Seale had a lawyer to represent him named Charles Gary. At the time the trial was supposed to start, Charles Gary ended up needing emergency gallbladder surgery. Oh, 
They made a motion to postpone the trial until Gary was recovered. However, the motion was denied. Then, when they tried to appoint a lawyer, or the courts tried to appoint a, a lawyer to Bobby Seal, but Seal declined, choosing to represent himself because he didn't feel like their court-appointed lawyer would act in his best interests. Which makes sense. Exactly. So he was... Was he so, um, educated enough to do this? Based on what I read, yes. He okay. was, like, he was the chairman of the Black Panthers. I was just so curious he, if he had enough education or if this was... It definitely was an unfair circumstance, yes. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm sure it probably would have been better. Than yeah, that, yeah, I just want to make sure there was I at say, least something. I say probably would have been better. Because every time Seal tried to exercise, exercise this right... The judge told him that he wasn't allowed to do that. Wait, what? Yeah. So, basically... What? Yeah. To be his own? Yeah, so anytime, like, for instance, like, the defendants would be addressed, Seal would bring up the fact that he was not allowed to have legal counsel of his choosing, that he is, by law, allowed to have. Judge Hoffman was like, no, it's not a thing. When witnesses were being examined, Seal would attempt to take part in his defense since there was nobody else to defend him, by questioning the witness. Oh, boy. Any attempt to do this was shut down by Judge Hoffman and led to Seal being charged with a massive contempt of court charges. So basically, he was like, I'm going to defend myself. And they're like, all right, cool. And then anytime he tried to say anything, they'd be like, you can't talk right now. If you don't stop talking, you're going to be held in contempt. So he couldn't defend himself. Exactly. Mm. All of this reached judge a, lost his job. All of this reached a boiling point one day when Seal tried again to express his desire to partake in his defense by cross-examining examining a witness on the stand. Hoffman decided he was tired of dealing with Seal, so his answer was to have Bobby Seal bound and gagged. He was unable to move or speak in any way. They literally tied his hands and legs to the arms and like legs of the chair. And put an ace bandage around his face up to his nose so he couldn't speak. Oh, that sounds legal. Yeah, it seems super legit, doesn't it? <laughs> the other defendants, as well as their lead defense attorney, William Kunstler, loudly protested this. See, all the other seven had the same defense team, all that jazz. Kunstler even compared Hoffman's courtroom to a medieval torture chamber, which led to him getting his own contempt charges. Eventually, Bobby Seale was granted to have his own trial, so he was officially split at that point. But other defendants began protesting in the courtroom even more openly after this. Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin showed up to court one day wearing judge robes in protest of Hoffman. Mm. Of course, Hoffman got pissed and demanded they take them off, and when they finally removed the robes, it was to reveal a Chicago police uniform to also protest the police. like it. The remaining defendants like I said, had been solidified as the Chicago 7 in the public eye. But even after Bobby Seale's trial was separated, the courtroom was still basically a farce. Anytime the defendants spoke in their defense or protested in any peaceful sort of way, they were given another contempt of court charge. They were all very open about the events of the night and the fact that it was the police officers that started the riot. However, anytime they could get a leg up with the jury, Hoffman blocked their defense. If something was presented that absolved the seven of guilt, of which there were many pieces of evidence, it just wasn't allowed in the courtroom. One of the biggest examples of this is when Kunstler figured out his ace for proving the innocence of his clients. If you remember, there was already an investigation done by a previous attorney general. And Ramsey Clark was like, there's no case here. Mm Kind of looked at as poor manners or whatever for a former attorney general to testify at a trial... But Ramsey Clark was like, yeah, no, this is some bullshit. Our investigation was not confidential, and I no longer work for the U.S. government. So as long as y'all don't ask me questions about deals from my private meetings, I can blow this whole fucking thing wide open for you. Judge Hoffman barred Ramsey Clark from court proceedings, stating that he could make, quote, no relevant or material contribution to the case. Mm Several prominent lawyers spoke out against Judge Hoffman at this point, citing that his actions were extremely unusual and that most, if not all of them, had never been part of a trial where the fence was not allowed to call a witness that had been part of the events that led to the trial. Like, Ramsey Clark was the attorney general. He was involved in the investigation of these events. Mm -hmm. Why would he not be allowed, except for the fact that he made it abundantly clear that it was not their fucking fault? 
At Kunstler's objection to having Ramsey Clark barred, he included the fact that they were obviously screening witnesses for the benefit of the government's case against them, and that what they were doing was unconstitutional. His objection was overruled, and it said that he got another contempt of court charge for that. Basically, that was Judge Hoffman's, like, favorite thing, and they really hammer on it in the movie. It's like, you're talking contempt. (laughs) And I was like, this seems a bit extreme, but that was one of those things that as I was researching, I was like, "Mm, everybody in contempt, I guess. Yeah, I mean, no. After months of proceedings, eventually on February 18, 1970, the jury came to a verdict. Freunds and Weiner were acquitted. They weren't um, leaders of other political groups. And one of them was actually from Chicago, so he didn't cross state lines, so that made no sense. Dellinger, Davis, Hayden, Hoffman, and Rubin were all convicted of crossing state lines to incite a riot. On top of that also came all of their contempt charges. On February 20th of 1970, Judge Hoffman sentenced the five members of the Chicago 7 found guilty by the jury. Each defendant made a statement before a sentence was imposed. David Dellinger told Hoffman that he was, quote, a man who had too much power over too many people for too many years, but that he admired his spunk. Rennie Davis denounced that when he got out of prison, he intended to move next door to prosecutor Tom Foran and brings his sons and daughter into the revolution, which I love. Like, hey, you're, you're going against me in this trial. That's obviously fucked up. I'm going to come fucking teach your kids about the right way to live a world, live in this world. Tom Hayden often the, offered the opinion that we would hardly have been notorious characters if they left us alone in the streets of Chicago, but instead we became the architects, the masterminds, and the geniuses of a conspiracy to overthrow the government we were invented. Abby Hoffman recommended that the judge try LSD, and Jerry Rubin offered the judge a copy of his new book, Do It, with an inscription inside. Julius, you radicalize more young people than we ever could. You're the country's top yippee. After listening to each defendant give his statement, Judge Hoffman sentenced each defendant to five years imprisonment plus a $5,000 fine. When later asked about the offense, Abby Hoffman said that he didn't know whether he was innocent or guilty. Norman Mailer pointed out the reason for this was because they realized you don't have to attack the fortress anymore. All you have to do is surround it, make faces at the people inside, and let them have nervous breakdowns and destroy themselves. Finally, after two years of appeals and social and political pressure, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals reversed all convictions based on the obvious court bias against the defendants and the fact they were not allowed to fully defend themselves. All of the men continued their social activism, some of them for their whole lives and careers. And that is the story of the Chicago Seven. What happened to that judge? He just did judgy things. Yeah. He never got fired? No, like, fun fact, Mm -hmm. Rennie Davis ended up marrying Jane Fonda. Oh. Yeah. That is so. He did some things. Good things. Yeah. (laughs) What are you talking about, Lindsay? I say as I already know, and I'm going to (laughs) start drinking this mimosa. I'm talking about specifically the American eugenics movement. Which is something I did not know existed Woo. at all in America. So this is this yeah. is a tough pill to swallow because of that. So the uh, American eugenics movement was developed from the biological determinist ideas of Sir Francis. I think Gal- Galton. I don't know. It doesn't matter. He's kind of a dick anyway. So what we does don't it matter? like that guy. Um, so he used eugenics in his description of biologically improved genes in human races. Basically, the white people were better, but specifically white people who were rich and had personality traits that were deemed better and fit. Oh. So he believed that through a selective breeding that human race could be improved in its overall quality, which meant that humans could control and direct their own evolution. Oh. That's more specifically what his thing was. Selective breeding. Yes. This was, like, actually really largely supported in the U.S. from, like, really famous corporations, like Railroad and uh, Carnegie Institution. Oh, geez. Like, really famous. And also, like, Theodore Roosevelt also, like, supported this, which, like, fuck that, because he was, like, my favorite president. Now I can't like him. (laughs) Not your favorite anymore. No. This also um, supported strict immigration laws, which then supported the decision to forcibly sterilize the poor, disabled, and immoral. It me. 
So the Eugenics Record Office provided training for field workers who were employed to analyze individuals in various institutions like mental hospitals and orphanages because they also did this to children. No. Yeah. Some of these supporters, which are Charles Davenport, uh, psychologist Henry H. I think Goddard. Goddard. Thank you. And then Harry H. Uh, Laughlin, which like was really tough also because I study these people. Whoops. So, now I don't trust their word. I didn't believe you, sir. Uh, and then also Madison Grant, he, who began to lobby for various solutions to the problem of the unfit, leading many of these well-respected professionals to some very problematic beliefs. Davenport felt that immigration restriction and sterilization were the best methods. Some others favored segregation and Madison, I think it was Madison Grant, is that what I said? Yeah, Madison Grant favored all ideas and more like the idea of extermination. Oh, okay. That's what we're doing now. It feels like we jumped a little bit. It feels like that gets a, gets a little extreme. So American eugenic ideas were actually borrowed by the Nazis. So we gave the Nazis the idea of a superior race. See, that makes sense. Hold on, even better, even better. Immigration laws made it really hard for U- European Jews to come here to escape no! Death. You had to apply for a visa. And according to... So remember I was telling you I wanted to get this book? So this book is called Imbeciles, and I can't remember the author. I didn't get a chance to read it. But in the, in the book, in the 90s, someone found correspondence between Otto Frank and Frank's father mm-hmm. and the government trying to apply for a visa to please, please, please let him and his family come here. America was like, no, we have too many people here. You can't come. Sorry, we're full. So Anne Frank died because of... America. And may I remind <laughs> you, they did not write RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah. Well, this was based off of, like, cities' populations, and so, like... There's a lot of space in the Midwest. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> there, there, there was, yes. But I guess, like, specifically where immigrants were, like, coming in at. So, like, I know California was a big part of it for certain. And then um, on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. So, like, if a certain city, like, we'll use New York, for example. Right. If they had met, like, their national quota, quota for immigrants, then it's like, sorry, we can't accept anymore. Which, problematic, obviously. The American Breeders Association was the first eugenic body in the U.S. and was formed to specifically investigate and report on hereditary and the human race and emphasize the value of superior blood and menace to society of inferior blood. And then the American Association for the Study and Prevention of Infant Mortality was one of the first organizations to begin investigating infant mortality rates in terms of eugenics, which promoted government intervention in attempts, like, to fix the health of future citizens. So, like... Women who might suffer more miscarriages or stillbirths. Mm-hmm. Obviously, she's not the person to breed. I'm sorry. I like. I just. This, this, I know. This is how it is. I know. Good news in the deep south, like Florida. Florida's part of this fucking problem, and I'm mad at Florida. Also, just for the podcast to know, not supporting them this week. Um, many women's clubs played critical roles in establishing public eugenic institutions that were segregated by sex. Oh, good. So while institution, like while you were in the institution, you couldn't have babies there either. Oh, and these institutions weren't only like mental institutions; they were for people who were like epileptic or okay disabled, stupid morons, yeah. like those kinds. Of, like th- like that's the people that were at these places. So if you separated them while inside the institution, you could not have sex and have a child. Right. So that was the whole point there, and um, th- this was the aim. To specifically separate the mentally handicapped men and women from creating more feeble-minded individuals. Because that's what it was called back then. Because that's how that works. Well, genetics. Uh, But not only... So, like, I know when you think of handicapped, which... uh, is Is that the right term here? Are we at that point using handicapped? Differently abled. Thank you. I'm not really sure what the right word is here. But back then, because this is from, like early 1900s, it was anyone who was epileptic, an imbecile, or feeble-minded, they couldn't get married. There were marrying laws in addition to the segregation and sterilization. Sterilization rates across the country were relatively low until, which this is probably my new favorite Supreme Court case, it's um, Buck versus Bell, which legitimized the forced sterilization of patients at a Virginia home for those viewed as mentally handicapped. At a after a eight to one ruling, 
I was gonna say, wait a minute, why is this your new favorite? I, just, I like history, not yeah. like I support this. It's just like, right. this is fascinating that it's this like, actually got to this insane level. insane that we're here. Yes. It's more of like that. Like, this is like, my, this is going to be my new favorite thing to reference. And like someone's a train like, wreck. Supreme Court makes great choices. Do they, though? Let me reference this one. And this is still a law to this day, by the way. Oh. So what I'm about to cover, this has never been overruled. Carrie Buck lived in impoverished, like, Charlottesville, Virginia. She moved in with a foster family. Her mother was like, I'm going to give you a better life. And listen, like, you can live with the like this couple who have more money and you'll have more privileges. You can go to school. Carrie attended school until the sixth grade before she was pulled out to do housework full time. And she also was like, would offer services to like clean other people's barns and stuff to make oh, nice. nice. I mean, yeah, it's early 1900s. Like, I don't know what you want from me here. Right. <laughs> what, what else are you supposed to do? Carrie, when she was 17, was raped and impregnated by this couple's nephew. And when she was found to be pregnant, they are like, oh, you're immoral. You're part of the problem. You should not be breeding. And then also, if this got out, like, their nephew would look bad. So they had that guy. Right. So they had Carrie um, declared mentally unfit. And so she was institutionalized. The reason why she was picked is because she revealed how imbeciles breeding was a problem and that they do it at a young age rate since she was 17 had a child and there was her mother wasn't very smart and she herself wasn't very smart so there is a pattern of like genetic problems okay not that there really was because she was pulled out of fucking sixth grade so right. like i mean how smart can you be she wasn't educated exactly was so, sent to the workforce and then was raped all things which were out of her control mm-hmm. but yes it is all her fault Yes. And women were specifically targeted because we were felt like it was our fault for breeding. We're the weaker sex, of course. Oh, yeah. So that's why she was picked. And this doctor went after her for those reasons and was like, let's use her as like a court case to prove that this is better. And I can't remember who it was, but someone said three generations of imbeciles is enough. What? Yeah. Like, it, yes. <sighs> it, is a, it is a quote that is like famously known. I cannot think of who said it now, but it was referring to her, like her mother, her and her daughter. She gave birth and then was soon sterilized. She agreed to it because they said, once you're sterilized, you can go back living with your foster family. You can have your daughter. They did not want her when she got out. And they took her daughter from her also. No. And kept her. Yeah. Carrie does go on to get married. Um, She has a great, you know, life. She's very smart. People who knew her never thought of her as anything less than, like, intelligent Mm -hmm. or anything like that. So she was really targeted because she was poor. Right. So, in an effort to shape American families, the big factor was fit and unfit for an individual if they should breed or not. What was fit was um, the upper to, well, the upper to middle class that were mostly white. That was the fit individual. So, upper upper class women were encouraged to bear more children and become more family minded when approaching doctors about becoming sterilized. They're like, no, 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 you can help better the race. So we're not going to sterilize you, and we're not going to give you birth control. Next time I talk to my <laughs> doctor about uh, trying this to get up. fixed, I'm going to be like, so do you believe in eugenics? <laughs> Is that what you're doing here? Yeah. Is that why you won't let me do what I want to do? To make matters worse, Carnegie Institute explored 18 methods of removing defective genetic attributes. The eighth method, which is let's kill them all. Oh, that's one way of dealing with your problem, however, I suppose. However, however, many believed America was not ready to implement a large-scale program like that in going through all of these institutes. They're like, no, 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 America's not ready. They can't accept this. We're not going to do this. So they did it in other ways. For example, a mental institution in Illinois fed incoming patients milk infected with tuberculosis because there was reasoning that genetically fit individuals would be resistant to this. <laughs> yeah. Does anyone here want to want to take a gamble if they're genetically fit? <laughs> I'll just sit this one out. Why so, don't you try it first? Yeah. Why am I the one that's fit? And on that note, I'm going to make a drink. <laughs> so this resulted in a thirty to forty percent annual death rates, and other doctors simply practice just um, forms of lethal, like lethal neglect. You know. Thanks, I hate it. Because this was a scientist, and they believed right. this to, like, be proven by science. God, this really makes me really concerned about my future sometimes. <laughs> Am I going to practice bad no, things? No, I will bitch slap you. <laughs> like, will, will we know they're bad? Yes. 
That's why I wonder, like, oh my god, will I know if I'm doing something if wrong? If you ever look at someone and say, maybe I should just euthanize you, because <laughs> I don't think you're very intelligent, just stop. <laughs> uh, men were sterilized to treat their aggression and elimin- eliminate their criminal behavior, while women were sterilized to control the results of their sexuality. Okay, but, like, why won't we? Okay. Okay, yes. I'm in the mind who believes in eugenics. <laughs> if? Mm-hmm. This is the case. Yes. Our reasons are because women are a little too slutty. Yes. And they're too aggressive. <sighs> and, and criminals. And criminals. <laughs> yes. Why, what if they're slutty? Well, they can't be. They're men. Oh. I'm sorry. No, no. no. Men can put their dick in Excuse whatever they want me. to. <laughs> well, okay. Full disclosure. Oh, boy. I still... Do you put your dick wherever you want <laughs> the full disclosure. Well, no. Full disclosure. (laughs) Uh, So, basically, eugenicists... Is it eugenicists? Eugenicists, yeah. Okay. Just want to make sure. So, they held women more accountable for the reproduction of the less desirable members of society. Because of this, they mostly targeted women in their efforts to regulate the birth rate and protect white racial health and weed out the defectives. While color me shocked. I mean... (laughs) The most significant era of eugenic sterilization was between 1907 and 1963, which resulted in over 64,000 individuals being forcibly sterilized. A steady increase of women sterilized occurred around 1930, and in a few states, only women were sterilized. From 1930 to the 1960s, more sterilizations were performed performed on women than men. In fact, by 1961, 61% of the 62,000 total sterilizations in the U.S. were performed on women. I don't know how many that is because I can't do math that well, but 61% feels pretty high. But also, I wish they understood that they would uh, prevent more pregnancies by sterilizing men than by sterilizing women. I mean, Yes. I don't think people did math a lot back then. <laughs> I mean, one. I mean, one female. We've talked about this. Can only have one child. Exactly, one female can have one child in a calendar year, but a man can have. I think it ended up being like he can impregnate something like two hundred to two hundred and fifty women a year. So eugenics and eugenic organizations began to revise their standards uh, or reproductive fitness after World War II. Can you believe it? Insane. They went, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not what we wanted. Put it in reverse, Terry. So this reflected newer ideas um, of, of social concerns, such as welfare, Mexican immigration, overpopulation, and civil rights. Those were the new concerns that were reformed into this eugenic plan. Before World War II, eugenic sterilization programs targeted prisoners and patients in mental hospitals. But after the war, it targeted poor people and minorities. Did we we get better or did we get worse? (laughs) It's so sad. Although most scholars agree that there were over 64,000 known cases of eugenic sterilization in the U.S. By 1983, no one knows for certain how many occurred between the late 60s and 70s, though it's estimated that at least 80,000 may have been conducted. Jesus. Which is, which is so much. Uh, a large number of those were African Americans, Hispanics, and Native American women. So, like, those became the new targets. So about 5,000 African-American women made up the 7,600 women sterilized between 1933 and 1973. North Carolina was the first state to offer compensation to surviving victims. So African-Americans made up just over 1% of California's population, but they accounted for at least 4% of the total number of sterilizations conducted between 1909 and 1979. How does that math make sense? People are really good at ignoring stats. Like, it's only 4%. It's so little. 4%. So finally, in 1972, United States Senate Committee revealed that at least 2,000 involuntary sterilizations had been performed on poor black women without their consent or knowledge. Jesus. Sorry. An investigation showed that these surgeries were all performed in the South. Haha. <laughs> 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 on black women with multiple children who were receiving welfare. Many of these women were threatened with an end to their welfare benefits unless they consented. 
However, this wasn't brought to media attention until a year later in 1973, when on June 14th, two black girls, uh, Minnie and Mary Alice Ralph, they were 14 and 12, were sterilized without their knowledge in Alabama. Jesus Christ. Yeah. These young girls sued the government agencies and the individuals yeah. responsible for their sterilization. And then upon further investigation, it was revealed that the girl's mother, who could not read, had unknowingly, like, approved the operations when she signed their release forms. Jesus. They were there to get a fucking depot, like what I get, to get the yeah. shot. They, that's what they were there for. So this led to an establishment of new guidelines for its government sterilization policy. Make sure you yeah. understand what you're agreeing to. The next minority group um, that sterilizations targeted were... Latinas, because it was mostly women they were targeting. Um, Nearly one-third of the female population in Puerto Rico was sterilized, which was the highest rate of sterilization in the world at at the time. It was so commonly done that it was often referred to as the operation. So it was very obvious that these targeted minorities exemplified the strategic placement of racial eugenics in modern history. Though eugenics was not the only reason for the outrageous sterilization rates, it was also because they did contraceptive trials there, which started in the 1950s, and it was targeted towards Puerto Rican women. It was due to the land's large network of birth control clinics and lack of anti-birth control laws. But it was two, uh, sorry, it was two American uh, doctors, though, that went over to Puerto Rico and began this. Of course. This. Yeah, <laughs> because of that reason, because they knew what yeah. they were doing. So in California, the total individual sterilized was mostly Mexican, Mexican-American, and Asian women. Um, there was another class action lawsuit, which I can't say either one of those names, so I'll include it in a blog post, um, where they were forced or forced in postpartum sterilization, mm-hmm. which I don't know if anyone who's listening knows this. Well, after you've given birth, you're super not in the right headspace to make no. any decisions. no. Lots of emotions happening, lots of hormones flowing, Mm -hmm. perhaps not the time to make major life-changing decisions. Right. And these were supported by federal funds. I never, I was never taught this. I can't believe this was never like, by the way, uh, for like a hundred years, we forcibly sterilized people. Why, (laughs) why would you teach kids that? You, You can't have kids in a country growing up hating their own country. It just, it ends poorly. Well, we could be honest. It's we could be a little bit more honest. I agree with you. It's wrong, but that's where we My are. kids will know. <laughs> oh, what age? What age do you get to tell your kids this? Uh, puberty. Okay. You know. That's, well, actually teaching the girls. Yeah. To, yeah, I like that. <laughs> it, it all goes together. Right. I mean, I'm going to be like six. Like, that's <laughs> way too much. Yeah. All right, let's sit down. You're going to listen to this podcast. Okay, kids. Jesus. Not doing that. So, 10 sterilized women came forward with their stories about their sterilizations in the Los Angeles County Hospital. The judge ruled in favor of the county hospital. Of course he did. It did lead to accessibility of multiple language consent forms. So, more people understood what... What the fuck they're signing. Yes. Because that needs a court to decide that that needs to happen. Okay. So, the last minority to be targeted were Native American women. An estimated of 60,000 to 70,000 Native American women in the U.S. underwent this procedure in the 70s. Uh, So an examination of these individual cases revealed that Indian Health Service and contract physicians recommended sterilization to these women as the appropriate form of birth control and failed to present potential alternatives and explain the irreversible nature of sterilization. So this was just like, this is birth control. Hey, here, have this surgery. Yeah. Real quick, for some quick birth control. And again, women were threatened with the loss of their children and or their federal benefits if they refused the procedure. Ah, there it is. Mm Mm-hmm. So Native American women and activists mobilized in the 1970s across the U.S. to combat the coerced sterilization and advocate for the reproductive rights. They said it was a modern form of genocide. Truth. Which it was. Which is probably why we were like, oh, well, we can't be associated with the Nazis Uh after World War II. The 1970s brought about new federal legislation addressing the issues of informed consent, sterilization, and the treatment of Native American children. 
New regulations were released in 1979, which included a longer waiting period before the procedure and a presentation of alternative methods of birth control with clear verbal affirmation that the patient's access to federal benefits or welfare programs would not be revoked if they refuse this procedure. Like, that actually took until the 70s for someone to say, you're not going to lose this if you don't do this procedure. Forced or coerced sterilizations have not fully gone away. In 2013, it was revealed that at least 148 female prisoners in California were sterilized without proper permission between 2006 and 2010. And a Nashville district attorney was fired for including sterilization requirements in plea deals in 2015. Jeez. So what was the year there? 2015. That was five years ago. Yes. Yeah. So one person was including that for their for their plea deals. Like she'll get, hey, they will get can, sterilized. You can plead guilty, and we won't. We'll give you parole, but you also have to get sterilized. Five years ago. <laughs> so that's the American eugenics movement. This is too much. This was all over the country. It was. I mean, it is mostly white people, but yes, it was all over. This too much. So there's some. Education on eugenics. Yeah, I had no idea, honestly. <laughs> I didn't either. I feel educated. I'm glad you could be here for this. Me yeah, too. Me, yeah, I'm sure the listeners are too. <laughs> I don't even think we introduced that Ian we was going to be a part of the oh, second I half. Just <laughs> we did not. Just, I'm not usually in the room, just so you know. I'm, I'm just here. I was moving a bed. In any case, that's our that's our first episode of our second season. Mm-hmm. Woo! 19 more to go. Yes. What's our next one? Do you remember? Scams. Yes. Our next case is scams. <laughs> I know a thing or two. I'm super excited about mine. Do we have anything else? Just just where you can find us. Ah, yes. Shameless plugging. <laughs> it's been so long. He's forgotten. All right. So you can find us on Instagram at Pod. You can also find us on Facebook, Luminol Cocktail Podcast. And the very neglected website, which will not be neglected anymore, is luminolcocktail.com. Find all the links there. Remember, please rate, review, subscribe wherever you can, but especially Apple Podcasts. That's what I got. My shameless plugging. Sounds good to me. Feels good to be back. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, we will be back next time Mm -hmm. to serve you Mm -hmm. another round of Luminol Cocktails. Mm